following message is a presentation of Valley Metro Church, a community of believers dedicated to knowing God and making Him known. So, so far, um, we looked at um, God's view of money versus man's view of money, and we discussed that uh, many of us are here for, you know, different reasons, but debt being a uh, a problem, almost an elephant in the room that we all have to uh, commit to dealing with and getting aggressive and going at debt to make it go away so we can live in freedom. Bible's got a lot of scriptures we shared about debt, that we become a slave uh, to the debtor, uh, to, to the lender, and God doesn't want us to live in that kind of bondage under that kind of debt. We want to be able to run the race to win and not live under debt loads. Um, and in this session, we're going to talk about a big driver uh, in our life regarding uh, money, uh, what we do with it, why we do this, uh, things, the things with it, and oftentimes why we end up in debt uh, for various different reasons. But one major one, um, it might not be for everyone, but one of the major ones for most of humanity is our appetites and the things that are negotiables versus non-negotiables. Uh, life is full of negotiables and non-negotiables, and I think the sooner we come to a determination on what those are, uh, the better off we're going to be. Um, but if we want to get ahead, we have to deal with this burden. Now, there's different kinds of debt, and I'm, I'm sure in the room, uh, you know, if we had time to go through uh, each person's debt, uh, we would see that some debt is like, for example, student debt. Going to school uh, costs money, uh, depending on the schools you went to or universities, and there's a debt or loans in, involved in that, so there's student debt. Uh, some debt is mortgage debt. Uh, you want to buy a house or a condo, so you incur this uh, mortgage debt. Again, that one, I want to be careful to say it is a little bit different category because that appreciates. Um, that appreciates over time. And so even though you're paying interest, it is appreciating. There's pretty much nothing else in your life that I'm aware of that you are going to pay interest on that will appreciate. Everything else will depreciate while you're paying interest, and it's a double negative in two different – does that make sense? I mean fast. One is going this way and the other is going that way, and the whole transaction is kind of a loser in, in the big scope of finance. But real estate is a little bit different category uh, in most cases. Uh, and even, um, as Todd would tell you, even if you bought at the wrong time and things fell apart in five or six years, that all went away and you're back on track again. So in the big scope. Um, but the other form of debt is credit card debt. And a lot of credit card debt is based on our purchases. It's really our consumption. It's our choice. Um, you know, I would say that debt is not always the problem. It's often a symptom. Uh, debt can be a symptom, and we got to be uh, just honest about this. Uh, most debt is intentionally taken on. Um, most debt is in- intentionally taken on. Um, I-, I know part of the thing with the housing uh, thing, and Todd will probably talk about that. Some were saying, well, the whole reason I'm in this is because the bad lenders, those guys were bad. You know, and-, and a lot of people walked up and they looked at a contract and said, yep, I see the numbers. I want that. And they signed their name. And they, you know, let your yes be yes and your no be no. They sign their name to something. It's something that they chose to get in. If we go to the dealership and buy a car, we look at the thing, we see the car, we see the paper. I'm signing that. So, so debt is, 
no one, oftentimes that wasn't thrown at us. There could be rare circumstances where, oops, I got sick or I got, someone drove through a light and hit me and I'm out of work and I'm in the I didn't have hot. Yes, there is some debt we might have in life that we didn't incur or take on intentionally. But most debt in our lives is something that we chose some way, somehow, whether we knew about it intentionally or we weren't thinking, but we, we incurred the debt. And I would suggest that a lot of debt uh, isn't always the problem. It's oftentimes a symptom, um, and it's usually things we buy and sign up for. And the re- reason I need to say this, almost as a disclaimer, that sometimes all of this profound information you're going to get today and insight might not change your position for one reason and one reason only. Um, a lot of times debt has a deeper issue. It's choices and appetites. And I don't know that today's meeting will change that in our lives. But if it does, this whole thing can flip around entirely for everybody. Um, Because choices and appetites are a driver, really, of the whole equation. Um, uh, A friend of mine, and I'm just going to use his name as Bob. That's not his real name. Uh, Great guy. Um, He loved the Lord, got married, him and his wife working, bought a house, bought cars, bought stuff, fixed up their house more and more and more and did a bunch of stuff. And before you know it, they got into some really, really deep financial problems. And they thought, wow, what are we going to do here? Because we're so beyond anything that we can get out of now. What are we going to do? And someone said, well, why don't you file for bankruptcy? And so they filed for bankruptcy, and they got relief, and pretty much most of that, not all of it, but some of it went away, and they got a fresh start. They even, in this time, went to a ministry called Crown Financial, where you will learn how to use, kind of like Dave Ramp, you're going to learn tools and math. So they, they, they got the fresh start again, right? They went through the training to learn the tools. They both have two jobs, and it wasn't long before they were right back in the same exact situation with the two incomes, with the clean slate, with financial ministry tools, what changed? The choices and appetites didn't change. That's that's what the driver is. So you can have well-intended, even believers with tools and with resources not getting out of that funk, so to speak, not getting out of that mess because the choices and the appetites didn't change. Unfortunately, put an incredibly heavy strain on the marriage, as you were sharing with Pat, when you do marriage counseling, oftentimes that's the number one thing. This was monumental. It was overwhelming, and their appetite didn't change. And since the appetite didn't change, their expenses didn't change. And since their expenses didn't change, their debt never changed. Does that make sense? It's not the debt. It's not the expense. It was the appetite that drove it. I remember one time, just to give an example of the thinking, and this is the thinking, we can justify anything we want, why I needed that new car. I had to have, I mean, come on. We can justify anything, but the point is we really got to come to terms ourselves with the drivers of appetites and negotiables in our life. I remember uh, he had um, a couple of children, and he was thinking, well, you know, we probably, you know, want to get a... Um, you know, a watchdog, a dog that's going to bark at night or something like that. And I'm like, oh, that's great, you know. Um, so what are you going to do? And uh, I should have sent him to Suzanne to get a rescue. Probably could have got a dog for 50 bucks. That would have been a great dog. But no, that was not going to work. That, that's not the kind of dog 
They want it. Now, granted, they've already had these problems. They've already been underwater before. They were on their second wave of going underwater in the middle of this conversation. He said, no, no, we got to get a, you know, it's got to get a dog. It's going to bark. It's big. It's got, we got to get like a, you know, and they got a, uh, a Rottweiler, big, like a really large, I don't know what breed of rot it was, but it was a jumbo, huge Rottweiler. And I'm like, do you really have to get a dog that much? He told me how much the dog was. It was cost a fortune. I said, do you really need, he's like, no, no, that's the kind of dog. It's got to be, you know, barking dog, big, intimidating. You know, I'm like, well, you can get, there's a lot of dogs that bark. That'll be a watchdog for you and will do great for your family. No, 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 it's got to be this one. And then I come to find out they didn't get one. They got two. And I'm thinking, why, uh, Bob, <laughs> did you, <laughs> did you get two? Well, we found out, you know, these dogs, they don't do really well on their own to be social. They really need a, you know, another one, you know, another dog to be with it. I'm like, Wow, what's changed in the situation? Appetite and choices haven't changed. Does that make sense? It wasn't their income. They were, had two good incomes. They already got the clean slate through BK. They even went through crown financial training to get the tools and the resources. But under all of the debt and the expenses was choices and appetites, which drove everything. So for some people... Uh, It's not how much you make. For some people, it's how much you spend. For some people, it's not how much you make. It's how much you spend. Now, granted, if you're not making anything, you're right. You need a better job. You need to find income streams. We're going to talk about that a little bit later, how you uh, make money aggressively and how you, uh, you know, get get diligent about the income part of it. But I'll be honest with you. We even saw with Rockefeller's story and we even saw with Solomon's story, it was not how much he made. His appetite grew along with it. Isn't that what it said? The more I made, the more my appetite increased accordingly. And so nothing ever changed. And that's the story of many of our lives that were still driven uh, by appetites and negotiables, honestly, is what drives us. And so we need to learn the power of no. We need to learn the power of no. If we cannot learn the power of no, we will be just like Bob and go through a repetitive cycle saying, I got information, but I couldn't say no. And appetite still drove things. Paul calls it the soulish nature, by the way. When he, when he writes, King James uses that terminology, the soulish nature. In other words, we're all believers, and we're all mind, we got mind, will, and emotions, but a lot of times our, our wants and desires, even as believers, tend to pull us and push us around. And as a result, we can be in situations we don't want to be in because the soulish nature kind of just tugged us around, and we, we went with it. And so we have to learn the power of no. And I would encourage you, when it comes to being... Uh, financially stable and ahead and telling your money where to go instead of it telling you what you got to do. Um, we have to aim to be smart instead of being cool. And this is important. I know it sounds simple, but we have to aim to be smart instead of aiming to be cool. Why? Because there's a lot of cool things. Pat, you talked about the guy's got the new Mustang and the Harley. That is really cool. That is real. It is really cool. I mean, it'd be cool to have a new Mustang and a Harley. If somebody wanted to give me one, I would try, but I would never go out and buy those. Um, the, the point being, um, you know, they hit a button and it looks good and you jump on it. You can either be smart or you can be, be, be cool. Uh, and I would think God is calling us to be, to be smart, not trying to be cool. Um, a couple of scriptures that talk about this appetite thing. Uh, you know this, Ten Commandments, uh, Exodus 20. Do not covet your neighbor's home or anything else your neighbor owns. Your neighbor's done this thing and they hooked something up or they pull up in a new car. It's easy to look out the window and go, Whoa, check it out. Um, 
You know, um, it's easy to do that. It's our nature to see these things and go, wow, check, wow, look at that. The Joneses next door, they got a, you know, they got a brand new SUV or something. Whatever it is, you're thinking uh, it's easy to do. It's easy to do. Uh, Comparing, comparing kills. Comparing will get us in a lot of trouble, guys. Don't compare yourself to people. Um, The Bible talks a lot about comparing. And actually what happens, we start comparing and then we start coveting. First we compare and then we covet. We didn't plan on doing that, but that's just what we do. We, we look, well, look at them. They're doing that. So why can't I have, and we start comparing ourselves instead of keeping our eyes on the prize. Uh, first Timothy six, six godliness with contentment is great gain. Here's a test in your life, uh, of whether we're living a consecrated life or not. Would you be content? Can you be content with God? If you're, I don't mean your debt, but you're your means and the way you live stayed the same right where you are right now for the rest of your life and didn't improve. Would you be okay with it? Or to be like, no way, no, absolutely not. Because this is, it, there's been a statement, he who needs nothing has everything. She who needs nothing has everything, right? If we're living in need, then we're that desire, that apple shining is still driving us and we're still going at it and we're still incurring debt because the desire is driving the expense and then the debt is ruling us. Even though we have knowledge and wisdom and understanding, we're still driven that way rather than, wow, that's interesting. Could I be content? Could I be content? And I believe if we can be content with what we have, we are even positioned for more of God's blessing. If you have children and they're not content with what they have, you don't want to just go giving them more stuff. That's called spoiled. Spoiled kids do that. And you don't want to reward that spoiled mentality or behavior even with kids. So there's there's something about contentment and godliness with contentment is great uh, gain. So no matter where your debt came from, whether it's student loan, whether it's credit card debt, whether it's car payments, whether it's all these, I mean, it could be a lot of different avenues where, where it came in. Um, we have to, the only way it's going to go away, the only way it will go away is by attacking it, by going at it and paying it down. And as Pat said earlier, I want to remind you again, it's going to require a budget. If you have debt, and you want it to go away, it will not go away on its own. It will not go away in a passive mechanism in your life. It has to be intentional. you got to make a budget. Again, some people cringe. I don't like that idea of a budget. The point of a budget, and I think uh, your wife shared uh, well this kind of concept. She used an analogy of a budget, and I want to share her analogy if I could. I might mess it up a little bit, but she was talking about, say, say you're on the top of a mountain, um, you know, and, and you're running around, and I don't know what sport she used, but say soccer, and you're up on top of this mountain, this little plateau, and you're kicking a ball around, but every once in a while, you get to the edge, and you slip, and you fall down, you get hurt, go to the hospital, you get fixed, they put you back up on the hill, and you play soccer, but you go near the edge, and you fall down, and you, you get hurt, and someone says, well, we want to put up a budget, we're going to put a fence around this you're like, I don't want fences. I want freedom. I don't like the idea of a fence. I don't want to be constrained. I want. It's there to help you and protect you and bless you. And now you can kick that ball and run as hard as you want for the rest of your life. And you're never going to fall down and break a leg. Why? Because you allowed that fence to be there as a protective mechanism. And you don't get hurt anymore. And so that is what the budget does for you. You got to, um, the, the budget is an imperative part. Um, Proverbs 21.20 says this, a wise man saves for the future, 
but the foolish man spends whatever he gets. Saving is God saying, listen, I got a better way for you. It's going to be saving and spending have a lot to do with this. And, and a wise man saves for the future. The problem with debt is when you're under so much debt and you don't have a budget, when you're, when you're living, desires have driven things maybe, and the debt is, we're a slave to the debt. It's hard to save because we're under the debt. That's why we have to attack the debt first. We got to make it go away so we can have the liberty and the leverage to do the things in faith that we want to do and that God's calling us to do. That's important. That's right. What was this Proverbs, Proverbs 21.20. Wise man saves for the future, but the foolish man spends whatever he gets. Um, Proverbs 22.3 says, a prudent man sees, sees danger and takes refuge, but the simple keep going and suffer for it. And the concept there is being able to look ahead and go, you know what? There may be some rougher times ahead. Let me do something to put something aside. Let me be intentional with my life rather than, man, it doesn't matter. And we just keep going. And, and oftentimes we do. We will keep going and we'll maybe just keep swiping the card or just do whatever we have to do. It seems to be the American way of life. But I think God is calling his people, the church, to not be a slave to the debtor, but to come and, and, and live above that. So, again, start a budget and thrive to attack the debt. The debt's got to be attacked. We've got to attack debt. Uh, one great website that, that came up, you might want to write this one down because it's a, uh, Proverbs 22.3. 22.3. Um, and so uh, a great website you guys might want to go to to write down. This is going to help you guys. Uh, we, we were figuring out what the next phase of this could be, and we were thinking of doing like a budgeting class following up to this just for everyone to like sit down. But to be honest, here's a great, uh, and we still may be doing that, um, but here's a great website with amazing budgeting tools that I think you would really uh, appreciate. It's super user-friendly, and it's, um, it is everydollar.com everydollar.com and you can go in there and it here's the thing about this it and some of you might not want to do this because again it sounds like it's um, hurting you not helping you but it is helping you it, it it asks you to document the dollars you spend now, I know after talking to Pat and Kate they were talking about this in your marriage counseling with people um, to to fill this out and don't come back until you filled everything out for like everything you've spent for the month and some people won't do it because they don't really want to get debt free, um, but if you really do, you're like, oh, I don't know, it just it just goes. We got bills. It just that's why. It just that's end of story. And it's like, no, that's not the end of. That's only the beginning of the story. Because when you actually write down categories, you are stunned to find out uh, what you're spending uh, your money on. And so um, that's really important to document what you spend. And you got to know what you've got and where it's going. And if you can't see that in front of you, you can't even make a budget. You can't even come up with a plan. You can't even come up with an aim until you actually see where it's going. Um, you know, um, th this is, again, appetites and negotiables. When you look at this list and it's in front of you and you actually see it, you're going to be like, wow, we do actually eat out a lot. And that's uh, $800 a month. We didn't think about that. I mean, because everybody eats out. What's wrong with that? You know, going out. Nothing's wrong with it. Just know. And if you want to do that, continue to. That's, that is totally fine. 
but you need to know what's coming in and what's going out. And you need to know we're fine with $800 a month in eating out, and we're fine with $200 a month in Starbucks. When we go get the mocha fraps and we get those, you know, every other day, that's okay. But we will spend two, you know, if you know that, um, you know, I stopped doing this a long time ago. I used to grab a Starbucks here and there. It's like we make our own coffee right here. We'll grind something up and we'll make something just as good. And it's really affordable and we like good coffee. And so we don't spend much money for it. And, you know, with our family, we don't eat out very much. That's kind of the exception to the rule. I pack a lunch and bring it as does Dylan. Why? Because that's a lot of money if you think of eating out. So there's a lot of different ways to allocate things you can get by with. We're going to look at some of the uh, ways to save money in uh, some of the next sessions coming up that I think can help you a whole lot. Uh, But you have to separate your needs from your wants, your negotiables from your non-negotiables. And when you have that list, um, you'll be able to put things down like, okay, no matter what, I have to have my home, whether it's a a, a house, a a condo, or an apartment, uh, no matter what that is, that's a non-negotiable. That's required. It's essential. Uh, Our food bills are this, and our utility bills are this. And these are the things we need to have, and our insurance is this. But... Uh, the newest iPhone that, by the way, we got, and the new car, uh, by the way, which we got, and the, and the whole bunch of these things in the category and the eating out, you're going to go, oh, those really weren't, um, those were negotiables. And they could be different kinds of negotiables. Or you can look at that and go, it's okay, I make the money, I'm fine with all of those. Does that make sense? But you got to at least write it out and come to terms with that. Um, eating out, purchases, even entertainment, things like that. So, um, Guys, this is, uh, again, t- the, way, the way I think, I-, I agree with your thoughts, Pat. The idea of a budget sounds, don't make me do that. I, anything but a budget. It sounds constraining. It sounds, but it's powerfully liberating. If you have debt that needs to go away, you can't afford to not make a budget. It, things won't go away without attacking it. They've got to have a game plan. There's got to be a battle plan. Because debt, again, is something we can choose to dance with. Or, or we can say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go at this thing and I want to I destroy debt. We're going to destroy it or dance with it our whole life. And so I would encourage you, if, if it's time in your life where you're looking at debt, and as Pat was saying, when you pay the interest, we'll look at this in another session to come, how interest works and how money works and amortization and just how they stack it on their end against us when we borrow, um, we realize it doesn't really go away. You're making this minimum payment, and my good, it just never goes away. They don't want it to go away. They don't want it to go away. They just want to keep getting interest, 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 interest. And you're like, how come it ain't going away? Because they don't want it to go away, and we don't know that, and we just kind of pay the minimum payment, and we're not going anywhere but throwing money right in the trash. We're throwing our money, and that's stewardship, guys. This is money that we work for, that God gives us, and that we throw away because we're not allocating it the right way. A budget helps shape and define and at least identify what our choices are. And here's the thing about a budget. No one needs to tell you what to do with your budget. You get to do that with your own budget. So it's not constraining. You get to make the choices that will be wise and beneficial. No one's going to say, here's your budget. Do that. And don't break the rule. No one's going to do that for you. That is your budget. You get to say, oh, my goodness. If you're married, you get to go, hey, hon, look at, would you look at that? Wow. You know, and uh, hair, makeup, and nails, we're paying $500 a month. Is there a better way? You know, because ladies still need their hair, makeup, and nails. Is there a better way than that? 
maybe there's a better way. If the guy's spending it on a hobby or some kind of thing, or he's buying guitars with it or whatever, it's like, uh, yeah, that's not really, you know, these are all, nego- I mean, let's figure our non-negotiables, and you as a family get to figure out, we are going to tell our money where to go so it doesn't tell us where to go. Amen? You guys good with that? Okay, awesome. And so, Christine is going to come up now and tell us about uh, credit scores, the hows and the whys, which have a lot to do with a lot of things. Yeah, now that we've got our appetites under control and figuring out our negotiables, maybe we can take some practical steps there. Okay. Um, Hello. So, bad credit... Uh, can be really a stumbling block to moving ahead. And like Pastor was saying, when you've got this interest that you're up against, you never really chip away at the the real debt. So, um, you know, you can not qualify for a car or a home loan or get turned down for an apartment. You know, that's... Those are tough things, like life basics that we need. Um, And bad credit um, signals more of a risk for lenders. So it's going to cost you a little bit more to borrow that money if you have um, credit that's not as solid as it could be. Um, And improving your credit score doesn't happen overnight. You know, it's like losing weight. It takes time. It takes... Uh, consistency, and you, you have to just really make it a goal, make it a lifestyle. So um, how do we do that? We're going to talk about some helpful steps and send you in the, the right direction. I'm going to put this down a little bit. Can I? Does that go? Roll. There you go. Perfect. Great. Thank you. Okay, so um, credit score credit scores range from 350, some would say 300, to 8, 850. And um, the magic number uh, to really get the take advantage of the lender's best rates is around 740. And Todd's helpful slides are up here, so we can reference those a little bit. Um, yeah, absolutely. You want to, that chapter 11 we were talking about, uh-oh, you're, you're going to be down here in the lower range. Um, you can see as you build your credit worthiness, you get better rates. It's a no-brainer, right? So if we're going to be shackled to a lender, let's maybe make it a backpack easy to carry rather than a noose where they're dragging us around. So let's, you know, keep that in mind. Um, We'll get the no-brainer out of the way. The greatest self-sabotage against your credit is not paying your bills on time. You want to pay your bills on time, and there are, there are tools we can use to do this. There are um, alert reminders you can set, e-bills, um, so that when you're on vacation, you still get the reminder, oh, yeah, let me go ahead and pay that. Better yet, automatic payments. And some lenders will give you a discounted rate if you do set up auto pay. Take advantage of it. Why not? 
Um, and they'll have nice uh, systems in place. Like B of A has a great online system. You plug it in, you know, you look at your statement, you plug in the account numbers, and they'll automatically take it out the day you want, you know, pay your minimum, even pay a few dollars extra. You know, it shows a good sense of money management to, to do that. So, um, and then no checks, no stamps, no forgetting. And a major negative impact on your credit is not paying your bills on time. So just take that easy step. That's a, something you have control of today. Pay your bills on time. That'll go a long way. And, you know, late payments trigger rate hikes. So you might be cruising along at 12% interest. A late payment can kick you up to 24 7 29%. You can't get out from under that as easily. Uh, okay, so... Quick, sure, and then we've got a couple of panel sessions that we're going to do later, so we'll see if we can... Yeah, showing that you can um, responsibly use and repay your credit, sure. Um, but there are, and this is great, we'll roll into the next topic about cards. You want to be able to manage your cards. Um, having multiple cards, a lot of open lines, is not particularly um, good. You want to have maybe one or two go-to cards that you can use um, regularly, build credit with those in institutions. Um, and you can even take advantage of rewards points and things like that. There's some good programs. Now, I wouldn't recommend, you know, going to Macy's and, would you like to open up a card today? You can save that 10%. Ooh, sounds good, right? Well, they want you to get on board, start stacking up the debt using the cards, and, you know, paying the interest and not paying down. So it's not a winning proposition. You might get 10% off, you know, but there's really no need to open a card to do that. In fact, it's not a good idea. So I, I wouldn't jump on that. Um, and instead of maybe using you know, 30 on this card and 50 on this card and having a little bit more exposure, you could just use the one card, build the credit. Um, you know, if you're able to manage it and really feel like you can control, you know, like Pat was saying, hey, 200 bucks on this card, woohoo, let's go to dinner. You know, if the temptation is there, close down the cards. You know, take that away. But Having, uh, showing that you are credit worthy and that you were accepted for these cards and you can use them, um, you know, that's essentially how we build credit. It's our resume, really, for lenders. Um, you know, this is how I've been handling money and give me your best rate. So um, using multiple cards fine if you can do it. I mean, there might be something specific, a gas card. Um, but if you have one or two kind of universally accepted cards, it's a little easier to manage, too, isn't it? I mean, we've got so much stuff that we need to worry about, you know, just having one or two account 
or cards to follow up with is an easier thing to manage. Oh, and we want to talk about debt ratios as well. So there's a generally a 30% ratio that lenders will look at, and if you exceed that 30% on a card, it, it signals, okay, we're, we're using a little bit too much credit. So say you've got a, a card with a $1,000 limit. We'll say that's an easy number. Um, when you get up to $300 on that card, it just triggers a little bit of a, a watch. Okay, you know, how are they going to use this card? We're, we're kind of extending ourselves a little bit more, so that will um, raise a little bit of a red flag, too, with the lender when you exceed 30% of the limit on your card, which is kind of mean, isn't it? It's like, you're going to give me this credit, and then I can't use it. But and even if you, if you want to establish credit and you're starting out and you have a low balance, maybe just don't pay it off in full. You know, leave a few dollars on there and then go back and pay it the next month because I, I noticed that when you do that and you pay it off in full, they, the card companies don't have any, you know, benefit from that. So that, um, but yeah, I'll, I'll check and see what the frequency is. Yes, yes, here, we're rolling on. Um, when you are shopping for a car or a home or any time that an inquiry is made on your credit, um, that can lower your score as well. Now, there are um, new regulations in place that give you a window of time to shop. Uh, 30, 45 days in there. So if you have several inquiries from a lender within that window, it won't count as multiple inquiries and ding down your credit. Moral of the story, be ready. When, you're, when you don't, you know, kind of dibble and dally, when you're ready and you know you need to buy a, you're going to see a Nick and buy your Honda, you want to make sure that you shop for the loan um, quickly with the number of lenders and make your decision and then not impact your credit negatively by multiple inquiries. And by the way, whenever you get a credit card offer in the mail, they have looked into your credit before they send. Um, if it is involuntary, the uh, marks won't hit. Just so you know, every time you don't panic when you get an offer in the mail, even though they've checked your credit, it wasn't at your behest, so it will not negatively impact your uh, score. And then I think the, the, those all, like we said, take time. There are things you need to do and be consistent about it. But the most um, impactful, immediate thing you can do, which you should do regularly as well, is look at your credit report. When's, have you, does everybody keep a close watch on their credit report? Okay. The um, website annualcreditreport.com will give you a look, a free look, at each of the three reporting agencies, um, your credit report with them. Annualcreditreport.com. So this can be a wonderful tool. Um, and by the way, if you stagger 
your request for your re, uh, free credit report from each of those three agencies, you could maybe get, you know, one from Experian. Four months later, you get TransUnion. Down the road, you get Equifax. Yeah, absolutely. So you are entitled to three uh, or credit reports from the three reporting agencies uh, every year and at no charge. So you want to go to annualcreditreport.com, and instead of requesting reports from all three at once, first request from, say, Experian or one of them, and take a look at that. Then as you maybe the next quarter request it from one of the other agencies, and then you can kind of monitor your credit for free during the year. Does that make sense? Okay. And so what you'll want to do is when you do receive your credit report, first of all, look for any inaccuracies. That's, you know, kind of the glaring red flags. Wait a minute. This isn't my, you know, data breach. Somebody got my info. Here's it. Okay. So that's the first and first thing you should do to really make a major impact. Now, you'll want to write to the reporting agency, and they have 30 days to get back to you. Well, some of them have an online, uh, kind of, you can do it online, right? So you can dispute it online. Mm-hmm. And if they don't respond within a certain amount of time, it's washed away. So um, the good news is, is it won't take a long time to correct uh, errors on your report. So definitely look for things that, um, you know, this isn't me. Um, you Maybe you did pay something off and it still shows up. Write the agency. You know, here's the date, here's, you know, the canceled check, whatever you need to do to support that. And again, 30 days repaired. That will start boosting your score up immediately as soon as you clean that report up. Um, Speaking of cleaning up reports, we were talking about closing some accounts. You know, if you feel like you're, you're kind of spread too thinly and you want to just clean it up a little, easier to manage, you can close some of the accounts. There's no harm in that. But what I would recommend is that if you have a good repayment history, you don't want that removed, obviously, just for the sake of cleaning it up. Maybe you don't use it anymore or the account is closed, but it sh- it's like getting all A's in high school, and then 20 years later you're like, oh, expunge that. I don't, I don't want to prove I was, you know, a good manager, a good student. So keep that on there. It shows, and, and your older accounts especially show longevity, you know, good money, money sense. So keep the older ones on. Um, you can also use the credit report as a tool for managing your debt. You know, talk about what do I spend, and I've got to write that down for thirty. Well, here's your credit report that shows, and it'll it'll show what your minimum payments should be and what your you know balances are. So that is also a great tool to help for an immediate snapshot. Ooh, this is what they they see me putting you know my my outgo every month. So um, great tool. That's one of the most immediate things you can do to kind of get yourself in shape. Um, the, the interest rates that we pay, 
determine how easy the load is? How are we, are we going to be able to, to get out from this? You know, you've got to borrow money to make large purchases. But if you can get your loan at 3% instead of 6%, if you can take advantage of the lender's best rates, you're going to be able to carry that that load and chip away at the principal and not just fill their pockets with, you know, the interest. Um, call your credit card companies. Once you've kind of cleaned up the report and maybe you're, you've got the, the auto reminder set up, you're looking good, going in the right direction, call the credit card company and say, you know, this 17%, I, I want to see if we can do better here. Can, you know, what bracket can you put me in? Negotiate with them. You know, that's that's your in your power to do so. So a couple of tools. Um, that's kind of about it. Do we have any other? Sorry, I was not. See, that's what I was afraid of, not blending in the slide. Um, yeah, absolutely. So we kind of hit on that. And um, it's doable. It really is. But you have to be intentional and consistent. So it's great to, to be shackled to a lender on <laughs> easier terms. So terrific. Thank you for your time. In this session, we're talking about the true cost of borrowing. Um, we do borrow. When you get a house or a condo, you're going to have to borrow a car. You can buy one new or used. It's up to you whether you borrow or not. There's a lot of things. But when you do, there's the cost to it. And I don't think people fully come to terms uh, with the reality of the math that happens with the transaction. In fact, most people don't. Um, we had a gentleman here. We do, a, um, we do a, uh, an outreach to the foster teens. And uh, there's one kid, he's about 19, and he said, well, I, I went to the Kia dealership over there, and they, they ended up putting me into this uh, car, and I ended up with all this stuff, and it was so overwhelming, I had to, I had to bring it back. And it was interesting, the terminology, they, they put him in. So they, they took him, and they brought him in there, and they sat him in the car, and they strapped him in, and they gave him the key, and they put the pen in his hand, and they put him in this thing. And we, we forget that, no, we put ourselves in you know what I mean does that make sense but he also didn't realize any of the math and again he's younger and but a lot of adults don't always understand um, how financial literacy works what are we really getting into and how does this thing turn into a mountain and how did it spin out of control and how come I've been paying and it's not going away and this doesn't really seem like it's a winning situation um, the way we spend every time we borrow we pay interest every time we borrow we pay interest nobody lends for free they're not in the business to lend for free and the reason they don't lend for free is because some people default some people don't make good and guess what who's going to lose that money well we got to charge interest from everybody and some people we charge even higher interest because they're not going to lose they're not going to lose at the end so they're going to make sure they get everyone's interest from everybody uh, the biggest loans once again being home or a car uh, student loans and credit cards and so the first slide I'd like to put up here is a loan disclosure just to visualize this um, oh wow that's really bad um, looking uh, um, okay so so this loan right here is for a it's figure a condo uh, maybe a condo further away 138,000 is a low price um, so figure a condo in maybe Palmdale. This probably gets you a condo in Palmdale. 
um, I think, right, Todd? Probably, maybe. Okay, so a condo in Palmdale for, um, don't look at the 200 number, it is a $138,000 condo. And so it's $138,000, and so you're thinking 7% loan. Does anybody have a phone real quick to do this? What is 7% added to 138? $138,000 loan, and we're going to pay a 7%. Uh, if anybody could figure that out really quick, fastest mathematician. Someone, you're doing it in your head. That's pretty good. Okay, so it's 9006 So add 10000 to it. So, you know, 138 paying a 7% loan. So you're thinking seven's not a bad deal, so I'm going to be like 148 right? Because I got a 7% loan. Not even close. Take what you're buying, double it, over double it. That's what you're paying. And you're like, no, that's not what I'm, I'm paying 7%. Yeah, but what we feel to realize, fail to realize in the math, it is amortized, amortized is the term, over the life of the loan. And you're like, well, that doesn't sound right. They told me 7%. Yes, but the way they stack their 7% is it remains 7% on the outstanding balance, ongoing, ongoing, ongoing. They figure out what this is going to be over the life of the loan, and they stack it on a curve that they get all their interest on the front. And so what you have here, you thought you were paying 138, but you're paying another 205 in finance charges on top of that. And so actually what you thought you were paying 138 plus that other 10,000, that 7%, you th- I thought it was 7% sounded good to me. You're actually paying 343 and you're stunned why, how come I'm sending in all these payments and nothing's going away? It's not going away. It never goes away. Why isn't this going away? Here's why. This is how they stack it. We're entering their world when we transact in a loan. We have to know how they do the math so that we can transact. And you, does that make sense? Really important to do. So um, that's important. Um, loans are amortized. They, they calculate the interest before the first payment is even made. They want all their interest ASAP, right, from the very front. They need their interest. And so the first payment that you have on this loan, does this loan actually show you the payment? Yes, it does. This loan right here is $955. Um, And ironically, there's 360 payments on this particular loan right here. Um, 360 payments, which would be, what, a 30... uh, 30-year loan. Okay, so um, 30-year loan. And notice the payment doesn't change. You're paying basically 955 for the life of the loan. So it's not like the loan changes and you know, can you pay this amount? Yes, I can. And you just keep paying and paying and paying. On that 955, about 900 of that is interest and 55 is principal. I'm just ballparking and you're like, that can't be. Oh, no, very much. What about my second payment? Okay, $949 is interest. And you get an extra dollar to the front. It's just the way it is. Nothing we're going to do is going to change. That is the financial world, and we need to be financially literate if we're going to step into it because that's what they're signing you up for. And you're thinking, well, wait, I've been paying on this thing for five years. I didn't even change the balance yet. A uh, little bit, barely. You barely did. Now, the same is true on the back end of the loan. On the back of the loan, your last payment is $2 interest. And nine hundred and fifty-three dollars, or nine hundred. You know, does that make sense? This says the last payment's nine fifty-one. So when your nine fifty-one payment, it's about nine hundred forty-five dollars principal, and five dollars. And why? Because they made sure they got it all on the front. So when the beginning, you ever like run, try to run on ice? You think you're going, but you're not. In the beginning, that's what you're doing. You're not. You're not getting anything done on the payment. 
they're making all their interest. But on the back, you're making complete momentum. So on the back of the loan, it doesn't really help to attack it so much on the very end. But on the front, it does. And so um, another one we have, if we could put up another slide, Dylan, this is a car payment, a five-year car payment schedule. And so this is the way amortization works, okay? And every loan you have has an amortization schedule. It's, they're all stacked this way. This is the financial world. So this is a, a loan. Actually, this is, not a, uh, this is a condo, okay, a $200,000 condo. Okay, so you have a payment of twelve ninety seven, and your, your, your payment on payment number one is 1100 interest, and 172 principal, and so you're working on your balance here, and you're thinking to myself, wait a second, if I'm paying basically $1,300 a month, I'm only paying $170 in my, on my balance? That's right. And because of that, there's even more outstanding balance that you're paying interest on again, right? Does that make sense? Because you're not attacking the balance much. The interest is wide open. The balance is wide open and the ongoing interest. And that's why it's such a sliding curve. It's all interest, 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 interest on the front. Um, You know, you can pay for a year or two, and that's a lot of money to be paying for a couple of years and, and hardly, hardly change your balance on the front of a loan. But that's the way an amortization schedule works. If you have a lender, uh, you can ask a lender, can you send me an amortization schedule? They're like, oh, I'm surprised you know about that. Um, and they will. They'll send you one if you ask for it, but nobody does ask for one. And then you could say, well, what if I spent an extra? Now, look at this here. $172 is your principal amount. If you were to actually add an extra principal payment to that, 172 to that 1297, does that make sense? It's not a lot, lot more money. You are chewing off the back of that loan like no tomorrow. That 30-year loan is just getting chopped down because their schedule, you've wrecked it in a good way. You've wrecked it for you. Yeah, in this particular situation, I'm just saying, if you were to add your extra 172 or 174, say you threw $200 a month on top of that payment, it's almost all interest and it's stacked over 30 years to be this all interest in principle. But because you do, you've chopped, you're chopping years off the back of the loan, like in such a dramatic way, you wouldn't believe that your loan could be paid in 22 years just by throwing a little, not crazy, but being diligent on the front, it's not really helpful on the very end of the loan. Todd can talk more about that. On the end of the loan, it doesn't really help you that much because you're not paying a lot of interest. Does that make sense? That's just the way they do uh, this. Now, the last payment being, of course, on this loan would be um, mostly principal. So the next slide we have for up here to get an understanding of how finance works is a five-year car payment schedule. Now, this is a car payment. So say it was a $20,000 car, and the dealer uh, knows we all like the new car smell. Isn't that how it works? Nick Nick works at a dealership. If if you want to buy a new car, a new Honda, uh, see Nick. He's your your guy. but it, a lot of people love the new car smell. But say, look, I can't afford a car. I'm not in a place for a car right now. I, don't, I just can't get a car. Well, come on in and drive it anyway. Just, just come on in. We'll give away free hot dogs and balloons for the kids. and Just come in and drive it anyway. You might even win some Lakers tickets. And, um, so you drive the car, and you can't really afford it. But I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to make it more affordable for you. How about we do that for you? Would you drive it away today if we can bring Okay, how could you? We'll bring it down to $400 for you. Now, you're not paying for two or three years. We're going to pay over five years. $400 a month for five years. Okay, so $400 a month. So when you make a payment, now this is not a 30-year mortgage, so it's not as quite as lopsided, but the same principle still exists for the term of the loan where your $400 payment, the payment never changes. 
Here's your first payment up here. Here's your last payment down there. It's still $400, but your interest is $125. Your principal is $275. And your last payment, it's basically all principal and no interest. Does, does that make sense, guys? That's the way it works. That's the way it works. They're going to keep doing that on your credit card, your outstanding balance on your credit card. Just pay the minimum. And they want the minimum because they're not really changing the balance. You know what I mean? They don't want you to change the balance, uh, you know, the outstanding. They don't want you to pay it on the principal necessarily. They're in the business to collect interest. And they do really well collecting. And, and lenders lend. You can't blame them. They're putting out money. It's their money. They're getting you into your car, your house. They have a lot of risk. Some people default. They're all about interest. So that's just their business. This is the interest of uh, the business of interest that we enter into. It's simply how it works. And um, so notice in this how all the interest is charged up front. They're, they're stacking it early with the interest. And the bummer is this, and this is a point I want to get across. You're paying interest, a lot of it, for something that is depreciating. And you might say, hey, I made good enough money and I'm not in debt and I want the new car smell and I'm okay with that. That is beautiful. It's not more godly or ungodly having a new car or the kind of car you drive. I want to be clear about that. I just want us to come to terms with the math and the stewardship of I have the expendable income to pay interest on something depreciating. And I like that. I deserve that. And I'm fine with that. And I'm not... And that's, that's okay. Does that make sense, guys? I'm not knocking that at all. And some of you, you know, buy new cars, that's great. But I would encourage, in a model that I use in my life, I'm not saying I have the perfect role model for this, but God seems to bless me with decisions financially um, in some ways, is to only pay interest on things that are appreciating. If they're appreciating, pay interest. Buy a house, buy a car. Let it, pay your interest. Get your best rate, pay interest. It's going up. And by the way, you're getting a tax write-off on your taxes every year of all the interest you pay. It gets written off of your thing. But on a car that's going down kind of dramatically, to be paying interest on it, especially on the front, right, it's really, bam, bam, it's really a double blow. And you're thinking, wow, that money could have been used on my condo payment, I could have been living in a cot. Todd's going to talk more about how you can get in. But I'm like, I, I don't have the money. But, but that allocation, that allocation could have been diverted over here. And you could be living in a condo or maybe in a, home, in a house instead of um, some of these things. So uh, here's a smart alternative. Uh, another chart, please, Dylan, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, here's a smart alternative, I believe. Um, so here, here's a car, okay? So somebody went down, they bought the new Kia. I'm not going to say Honda because Hondas are cool and you work there. Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, so you go down and get the new Kia. Uh, it's $30,000. And so when you buy that car, remember we looked at the interest chart. And so just for principal, $30,000, I want you to look at the depreciation of the car. When you drive it off the lot, you lost five grand when you drove it right out the driveway. I mean, as soon as you turned on Ventura Boulevard, you lost five grand right out of the gate. You try to sell that car, you're, not gonna, you're gonna have to take five grand off the price to sell it because it's not new, it's, it is used car now. Um, and so you pay for that new car. And that premium, and it is enjoyable, no one's ever sat in that seat before but you, and there is a value to that. I don't wanna knock it, but you have to count the cost, right? The Bible says we gotta count the cost. So in the first, in the first three years of that car, Year one, two, three, it is half price. Half price. Everybody say half price. 
Now, here's the thing about cars and models. A lot of models are the same for four years and six years. I drive an Expedition. They've been making the same 03 all the way up to 2000, and it's the same truck, right? It's the same. It looks the same. A lot of cars are like that. For four to six years, it's the same car. So you could technically be buying a 2016 right now uh, of something for $30,000 or get one three years old that looks exactly the same, looks exactly the same. That's half price. Now, half price is how much money? How much? What half price is how much? That's your money. That's your fifteen. You can spend it anywhere you want. You can tell it where to go, or it will go there for you. That's half. That's fifteen grand right there. Now, on that loan, how much interest did we pay in the first three years of this? Say it was a seven-year loan. A lot of new car loans. They're instead of to get you in. They're not doing a three and four-year loan. Most people they're doing a five or six, even seven-year loans to get you to get the payment low. To where like, wow, for two ninety nine I could yeah, two ninety nine you could drive out with this car. Wow, two ninety nine, I can't go wrong. But it's seven years, some or six years, and you're stacked with interest on the front. So not only is it fifteen grand on the actual purchase price, but then you add all that interest stacked on the other side, and you got another five or seven grand or something on interest stacked in the loan. So we don't just have fifteen, we got like twenty, maybe twenty two thousand. I haven't done the math on the interest, but does that make sense? But you could have done it a different way and saved 20, 22 grand. And, and driving the same car as your friend or your neighbor or the car that you wanted to have. Does that make sense? But you could save 22 grand. It's a lot of money. It's more than half the price of the car. Does that make sense? I mean, all cars, are, are, they are expendable. There's a value to driving to and from work. There's a cost of transportation. And so that's something we need to do in life. But what is the premium that you and I will pay to drive around and what something looks like and does it have to have you know the new car smell uh and so i would just say uh, again no disrespect to the new thing oh that's rocking your model right there but i am just saying christy and i have never bought a new car and i don't plan to we've taken all the money that we would and we'll spend it on a house payment which appreciates or we'll spend it on uh something more to us more valuable but again i don't want to negate this because some people there's no debt. You're making the money. You're like, hey, I want the new car. And it's fine. It's beautiful. If you have the money to put in those places, there is absolutely nothing wrong. I think it's really great. And maybe someday, you know, we'll be in a place. But I just, the way I think, uh, and, and I try to be resourceful, um, to me, rather than paying interest on depreciating things, I'd rather pay interest on appreciating things. Does that make sense? To, to do that. And so uh, here are some ways to save. I'm going to throw these out really quick. Um, these are some ways to save if you want to jot these down. And um, Buy pre-owned. Buy pre-owned. You've seen the curve there somewhere, you know, whatever, three to six years, somewhere in there, whatever, you know, you can do the math on the car, on what kind of car you want. Cars these days, in the old days, they... At 100,000 miles, they were throwaways. Now these cars today, especially a lot of American cars as well, but certainly Japanese cars, you know, 200,000 miles, they just go and go and go and go. And um, they're just Hondas, Toyotas. These cars are bulletproof. Um, and uh, a lot of American cars. I'm a Ford guy, so I'll, I'll throw Ford in there. Um, but anyway, um, buy pre-owned. Try to get original owner if you can. Original owner if you can. Get a Carfax, cost you 20 bucks when you're ready to buy a car. You go on Carfax and you can look up 
a bunch of them for the whole month. You can run the VIN numbers and you can find out the car was ever totaled in a wreck, out of state, was it from some other place. You don't want to buy a car that was in a flood area in the country. California car, one owner, that's great. Uh, a lot of times that owner went to trade it in and they were going to give them a low, low amount on the trade in. So they're like, wait a second. Some people just trade it in. It's convenient. Got to admit, going to the dealer is convenient. You just walk in, you drive out, you get a car, you're done. You sign papers, no head. It is the most convenient thing in the world, and there's the beauty of it. But there's a cost to that. And as long as you go, I am fine with that, great. But sometimes we just have to come to terms. So get one also that was maintained. Um, you can ask people, was it maintained? They have records. And so now you're buying a car. I like getting cars that are from further out where I knew it's freeway miles. Uh, the last car we uh, bought, we bought it from an old guy, little old lady from Pasadena. It was a little old man from Pasadena who drove to the, um, he drove out to the uh, casinos all the way out in Murrieta or whatever it is, Temecula. And so this thing had freeway miles. And I knew when I got out, I'm like, this thing is like so clean on the inside, but it's all freeway miles. It's all free. Freeway miles don't hurt a car. And I'm thinking, wow, it's clean, it's good. I got a great rate on the thing and, uh, you know, stole it. Uh, not really stole it, but <laughs> disclaimer. Um, okay, um, if if you, yeah, ton, tons of money, tons of money. Uh, but uh, if you can't if you can't pay cash for it, because again, getting ahead of the curve matters. But when you get smart with money, you end up making more money because you're doing you're sending it to the right places rather than being subject to. So if you can somehow pay cash. Uh, even if you, honestly, if I would recommend, I'd move further down that line and I would pay cash for a car. I, I would. I wouldn't say I got to borrow money because I got to be in that three-year range. I'm like, no, we don't and our family doesn't. We will move down that line uh, to get something good and clean and pay cash for it. Um, and that's typically how we operate. Um, also, if you have to, if you can't pay cash, uh, research your own financing. Um, if you go to a used car lot, you know, first of all, they're marking up the car a couple few grand, and then, then the financing, they're not giving you the best paper on the loan. They're going to give you what they sometimes what they make the best commission on at a used car lot. But um, I would say your own bank or credit union, you can find out the best rate. Uh, you, maybe even through Costco sometimes they have things. You find your own rate. And even if you find a car you want, um, they might say, if it's your local credit union or bank, they might say, fine, um, you find the car, just drive it down here. We'll give, we'll give you the, your loans approved. So somebody's selling their car, right? And it's a clean car and it's a one-owner car. You look at it. I want to buy it. We got to take it by my credit union. They're used to that. They'll look, make sure the car is not wrecked and that's the VIN number and they know the value of it and you're already approved. So you get approved beforehand. Does that make sense? For an amount, it'll be between five and 10,000, whatever it is, or 50, whatever you're going to do, you're going to get your best rate that way. So instead of paying 7%, maybe you'll be paying 3%, right? And so, um, you do that beforehand. Um, Another th way to save money, shop insurance. Insurance is a huge one. It's an ongoing thing. Most people don't shop. Uh, when you go uh, call the, the Allstate, State Farm guy, you're calling uh, an agent, not a broker. The agent works for that company. He doesn't shop deals for you. He works for the – does that make sense? You're dealing with their agent. You're not dealing with a broker. Sometimes you can go direct and save money. Here's one thing I recommend you guys do if you want to save money. Go to – California Department of Insurance, California Department of Insurance. Everyone in the state of California that sells insurance was required to register their rates 
with the state. They can't make up a rate. They can't make up a new rate for you and change it tomorrow. Every rate of every insurance product sold in California for this whole year has already been registered and on file with them. Most consumers don't even know this, um, but you can go on their website and you can look up automotive rates and you can type in your zip code and you can type in basically who's in your home and your zip code and hit the button. Now, it's not exactly you because it doesn't have your exact age and your exact detail, but the basic framework for the rates, the basic framework is there. You're going to see a screen pop up with 50 or 75 insurance companies. Every one of their annual rates for basically your quote is listed there. That's not something the Allstate guy is going to tell you or the State Farm guy is going to tell you. But you have free access to this knowledge. And what you're going to see is, oh, my God. Now, some of these companies you, you haven't really heard of before, and many others you completely know very, very well. I'm going to just throw three at you that tend to come on the bottom of that list. Uh, Wawanisa. Wawanisa, I've had them on my house and my car for uh, 10 years uh, they do renter's insurance to Wawanisa, W-A-W-A-N-E-S-A. Uh, and I've asked people, you know, they give me a quote, let us quote you. And I said, well, I have Wawanisa. And they're like, oh, we can't beat them. <laughs> they just told me, we're just, we can't beat them. And they also have some of the best, highest rated claim service. Like if your car gets in an accident, they're like, they, they sent Christie's truck to the Mercedes dealer. Like go there and like get it, like the paint, the Mercedes painter. I'm like, hey, nice little upgrade. So they're not making mess. The other couple that tend to come up high is 21st Century and, and Mercury. Huh? For low rates or high rates? For great rates, best rates. Yeah, 21st Century and Mercury also tend to come in really low rates too. Uh, highest rated, I'm saying, lowest rates. Uh, but you can go to that website, check yourself, and you'll see. You might find your company higher. Now, again, you pay the premium for convenience. If you like to call your State Farm agent and let him handle your claim for you and just do it all, you like. But you can call the insurance company and they'll deal very kindly with you directly, and you can talk to them anytime. But if you want to go through that middleman, he's making a living in the middle. Does that make sense? And you're paying his salary in your rates. If if you like that and prefer that, do that. If you want to lower your rates and save a bunch of money and tell your money to go somewhere else, right? It's a great way. Um, the big one. Stop eating out, pack a lunch, enormous amount of money goes in that area. That's huge. You can't miss that one. Um, utilities, I know you can't change your, your gas and electric so much or, or your rent, but other things like your TV, entertainment, that's such a variable. Um, many people nowadays are cutting the cord. They're getting rid of uh, dish or direct or cable, and they're just going with, by the way, you can have an antenna at home now because we live in L.A., and you get 35 high-definition channels right off that come in like better, better resolution than cable and all that stuff. So it's like you got that there with a little either Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime, whichever one of those you want to watch the movies on, and you're paying like 5 or $7 a month instead of a $120 cable bill. These are huge little, little areas, um, ways to – and there is a trend going that way, but, it's, again, it's a lot of money that we can allocate differently. Um, and then um, if you spend more – using a credit card than you would if you were paying cash. I say this because we're all wired differently. Some people do because it's like, well, I don't have to pay is the thinking and they spend more on the card. Well, then I want to encourage what Dave Ramsey says, switch to a cash only system. And I know that's an aggressive change, but when you have to actually pull $20 out of your pocket to buy those three mocha fraps that you bought for, you know, you're like, 
well, that's 20 bucks for three, three coffee drinks. I'm like, I didn't really. But, but the card, it's easy to do that and we move on. I'm just saying there's an outflow happening that we disconnect with and we're like, wow. So if you, if you would spend differently with cash than you would credit, then switch. Don't use your cards. Leave them at home. Put them in a drawer. Use them for whatever other thing you have. Use cash instead. If you would spend the same, then it's not relevant. But some people, I think, do need to switch to cash, and there's a good reason for that. It changes your whole habit uh, base. And then um, current debts, I think you touched on it. If you have credit card debt, find your highest rate. Attack that one first. There is a consolidation option. You can find cards that will offer a better rate to consolidate. If you want to put them all together, you can put them all together in one place for a lower rate. That's great. But if not, uh, if you're under debt, the new rates could even be higher of a new card that you might get possibly than what you have. It's hard to say. So you have to, um, destroying debt, you got to hit the highest rate first. If one's at seven and one's at five or one's at 12, go after the big one and knock down the big giant first. Amen. Knock down the big giant first and the other giants get smaller and easier um, to knock down. Uh, the other thing, um, co-signing, the Bible says don't do it. The Bible says don't co-sign. Proverbs seventeen eighteen. it's stupid to guarantee someone else's loan. That's the CEV version. And uh, contemporary English version is what it says. It's stupid to guarantee, like, is that legit to say that? It's stupid to guarantee someone else's loan. Proverbs eleven fifteen. whoever guarantees to pay someone else's loan will suffer. It is safer to avoid such problems. The Bible's got, there's a bunch more. I didn't want to list them all. On co-signing, only co-sign if you're willing to gift it. If you want to co-sign for your kid, you're trying to help them out, and you're like, I'd pay it anyway. It's my kid. If, and that's, if, if you wanted to gift your child, but you wanted to help them with credit to co-sign, but you're ready to pay the whole thing anyway, that's fine. But co-signing ends up being a lot of problems. We don't have to get into all the reasons why, but it really ends up being problematic. So again, there's a true cost to borrowing. And hopefully what we did is hit some of the real big rocks on the way interest works, on how we can take our money and instead of giving it away in this crazy interest schedule, that we can use it to do greater things with it and tell our money where to go instead of it telling us where to go. All right, so at this point, uh, we are going to, Todd, are you ready to come on up? Um, all right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk on three things. Um, and uh, one of them, I'll just, uh, I work for, you know, an evil lender, you know, and, uh, and, and yes, we purposely amortize loans to abuse you, the consumer. I, I almost had to stand up and walk out when he was talking about that. So um, first off, I, you know, uh, uh, I'll just, you know, I'll make this slightly interactive. Um, uh, you know, was, was, was anybody, like, seriously damaged during the financial crisis of 2008 because their house went underwater and they had a subprime loan or anything like that? Anybody, anybody seriously damaged? Because this, this is, this, well, the, I just want to point out something, which, which is, you know, to my perspective, the government thinks you are idiots and infants. And so... Uh, they do a lot of things that have unintended consequences. And as a prime example is the financial crisis of 2008. Um, the homeownership rate 
everybody believes that home ownership is good, right? Because it promotes stable neighborhoods and a stable society. So the long-term uh, 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 rate of home ownership is about 65, 66% in the country. And if you think about it, if you go, go back and remember 2005, 2006, 2007, which was the heyday of real estate and lending, especially here in California, uh, the home ownership rate got up to about 69%. And then, you know, the bubble burst, and it went down to about 63% now. So think about that. All of everything that's happened over the last five or six years was, was primarily because there was a, an attempt to boost the home ownership rate effectively like 3%. I mean, that's stupid. And, and people think it was lenders and the subprime lenders, et cetera, et cetera. And people always talk about Countrywide, which was, by the way, Cal, one of California's biggest employers, as the, as the head of the, the subprime lending. At the peak, they were doing 9% of their loans in subprime. That's it. What happened was the government pushed the lenders through, through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to expand the criteria, and that just opened the gates for a lot of bad behavior. Right, and that's and that's what Brian was talking about with you know with with um, you know appetite versus needs and, and things like that. So um, I could talk forever about this topic, um, but I wanted to talk about a couple things, which was which was which was home ownership because um, it, that's kind of one of the non-negotiables. Everybody needs everybody needs a roof over their head, and I want to talk a little bit about sort of what goes into a mortgage and what are the kind of things you should think about. So. First off, you know if you're if you're thinking about buying a home or 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 or, um, or dreaming of buying a home, you should you should first ask yourself a whole bunch of questions. Uh, you know, can I really afford it? Um, and what and what goes into that? First off, am I better off buying than renting? I mean, people think of of owning the home as um, you know as like that that's the thing that I aspire to. But in reality, you know, when you think about money or the cost of money, like Brian just went through. I can lease a car or buy a car. I can lease a house or I can buy a house. And, and it kind of goes into what, what am I trying to accomplish and how can I best lever, uh, you know, the cost of money? Because, you know, money, money, money costs the same, the same thing for everybody. It's just that there's slight uh, gradations of it based on you know, your credit score or, or where you're getting it from. So whether or not you lease a house or buy a house kind of, kind of comes down to, you know, really uh, long-term things because the transaction costs are huge. You know, you go buy a car, you know, what are your transaction costs? They're, they're, they're just the cost of the money. But you go to buy a house, you have to pay the real estate commission, either on the front end or the back end. You have to pay title insurance. You have to, you know, you have to pay for the appraisal. You have to pay for the inspection. It's a, it, you know, it, it has a huge um, transaction cost. So you want to make sure you consider that um, very carefully. So you want to, you know, you, you have to balance a lot of these questions. You know, why do I want to, why do I want to own a house, right? It's the neighborhood. It's the schools. Um, do I need a backyard? It's the commute. There's, life is full of trade-offs. And so the the, the home buying decision is one of those that you really need to spend a lot of time thinking about 
those kinds of things. Secondly, can, hey, can you um, tab forward because it'll fill in all these little bubbles up here that I didn't realize I was making. Um, so, so first off, I've, I've decided that I'm better off, you know, buying than renting. Secondly, I understand the cost of it, right? Because it's not just interest, but you, remember there's maintenance, right? And so there's all sorts of formulas out there that people talk about, like, you know, the cost of maintenance every year. And, and, it, and I, you know, a good rule of thumb is 1% of the home's value, right? So if you're buying a $300,000 house, you figure that you're going to have $3,000 a year in maintenance. You have to budget for that. Um, credit. Well, we talk a lot about credit, right? So uh, if you go back to that, that slide that had the list of all the, um, the, 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 the credit scores, I mean, does everybody know their credit score, right? I mean, if you told me your credit score right now, I, I could tell you whether or not you can get a, 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 you know, a house, basically just on your credit score. By the way, that's one of the problems with the, uh, in the financial crisis is we, we got into a model where the credit score ruled everything. If you could fog a mirror and you had a credit score, you could get a loan. Tell you a funny story. My brother built a. Uh, um, during that time period, he got he he got a uh, he was uh, starting a business basically as a home builder, and he went out and, and he got a, lo a loan to build a house, based on his personal credit. He had an 800 FICO score. He built a um, absolutely stunningly beautiful timber frame house out in uh, on the outskirts of uh, Fort Collins, Colorado. Um, he, uh, uh, he, uh, got the first and the second mortgage on it, uh, to build it in, in essence. Um, essentially, basically the bank believed that he was building his own house or a second house and, um, uh, about a million dollars. And now he had about $10,000 maybe to his name, right? He borrowed a million dollars, built a beautiful house appraised for a million four and then 2008 hit actually 2007 2008 the window closed his house appraised for a million four he was trying to sell it and could not sell it could not sell it the house got foreclosed he ended up filing bankruptcy to to, to clean it all up the house sold for uh, at, at auction, $650,000. Right, and today that house is worth a million four. <laughs> Timing is everything. Um, I have good credit, I understand, I'm financially stable. Um, those are, those are, these are things that you ought, to be, uh, you ought to be thinking deeply, deeply, deeply about. All right, so... How do you, how do you, there's, there's only four things that a, that a home lender is going to look at. Cash, credit, income, and collateral. Just those, that's, that's the four concepts you have to think about um, if you're thinking about buying a home, right? So first off, credit. All right, well, that's your credit score. Um, you know, and, and in general, what I would say um, there's those, those break points that I put up on that first slide. Every one of those, if you think, if you think about, um, the, uh, there's, a, there's a commonly word used called an overlay, right? And think of an overlay as a surcharge, right? So, so if I have a 780 or 800 FICO score, 
there are people outside this door right now waiting to give me money. I mean, literally, I could go online in front of you right now and borrow tens of thousands of dollars with nothing in seconds if I have a 780 FICO score. If I'm dealing with, a, 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 you know, kind of that top level, if I'm above 720 in general, I can get pretty good, the pretty good rates from the bank or the credit union or whatever institution you're dealing with. Most of them have kind of a break point at about 700, 720 FICO score. Going down from there, things begin to get a little bit more expensive. And when I say expensive, it means either a higher interest rate or a higher upfront charge, a finance charge, when you go to get your loan, right? They call that a discount point. And that might be somewhere like a half a point. So if you're buying a $500,000, and I never, try, never do math in public, but if you're buying a $500,000 house, a point is $5,000. So a half a point is $2,500. So think about that. Just because your FICO score is below 680 or is in that 660 to 680, when you go to buy the house, you're going to have to pay $2,500 extra. Boom, right off, right off the top, right at the front. Of course, we'll finance that for you. Um, so that's credit, right? Your credit score is important. If you have a 580 credit score, you could probably get a, you could probably get a, a home loan. But I, I mean, I, I just have to question your, your, you know, it's sort of the same as buying two Rottweilers and, and spending, you know, $100 a month for uh, 100 pounds of dog food every month. Why? You know, because there's something going on uh, where, where you, you haven't demonstrated that you can pay your bills on time. If you have a, I mean, there's a reason why you have a 580 credit score. Um, and so home ownership at that range is, is, is probably unlikely. Now you could you could have fixed all that, and your and your credit score just hasn't recovered yet. But gosh, if you waited a few months, if you had truly fixed all those things, and you, here's the thing, my, I'll give you another example. My brother, right, had the 800 FICO score, went had a foreclosure and a bankruptcy, right, which probably took um, 200 points off of his FICO immediately. Three or four years later. He's 760. You know, so you, you can make that FICO score recover. It's, it's possible. So we did credit. Income. Okay, well, that's your, that's your ability to pay. So there's, there's a ratio that lenders will use. And, in fact, the government, in its wisdom, has now put that into the law, which says if you have a 43 debt, you have to demonstrate that you have at least a 43 debt-to-income ratio. You know, which is basically if you take your your uh, in your your interest, the interest you're going to be paying, and divide that by your your income. That you know that should equal 0.43. Um, if you're above 0.43, there's a problem. You can't. You pro you're less likely to be able to get a loan. So, 0.43 is one of those sort of magic magic numbers um, for DTI debt to debt to income ratio. So you have to have an ability to make the payment on the house. And, and they'll look at things like reserves. What's a reserve? Well, if I'm going to make a $1,000 house payment, and let's say I've got a low credit score, but I've got $5,000 in savings, well, that, that's a five-month reserve. Right? So I feel a little bit more, as a lender, I feel a little bit more comfortable because you've at least demonstrated that you've got some cushion. The biggest thing that happens 
the thing that drove a lot of people over the edge over the last you know three or four years before before this recovery that we're in um, was payment shock. Right, payment shock. What what drives payment shock? Any anybody? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller. Uh, medical crisis. Right, medical crisis. I got cancer. All of a sudden, I got medical payments. Um, divorce. The great destroyer of wealth. Um, I lost my job, right? Oops, there's a payment shock, you know? So retirement, hopefully you plan for that, yeah. Um, so income, the ability to make the payment. Uh, cash, all right, so uh, how, much do you, how much down payment do you have to have to buy a house today? How much? So I've, I've heard two, five, 10, and 20. Could be. Could, there, there's three answers. Zero, three and a half, and 20. All right, so 0% down is that in, a, in, a, in, in most areas of the country, in most states, there are first time home buyer programs where you can effectively. Uh, ha- work with a state bond agency like Cal Hafa or, or uh, Cal HFA. If you go online and look at that, it's a, it's a bond program where they will take out, borrow $200 million and, or, you know, under a state bond that we are, we're paying taxpayer interest on. And then they will use that in small slices to basically pay your down payment for you, either in the form of a, a second mortgage or in a grant or down payment assistance. That'd be kind of a 0%, right? So that's typically for first-time home buyers. Um, and also, um, you, you still have to qualify uh, for the loan, but typically for those, you would see some, some that are in a little bit maybe a, a, a more credit challenged because typically, if you're going to buy a home, you've, you've already thought of having to actually save the down payment first. But there are some down payment assistance programs. Three three and a half percent is what is called an FHA mortgage. So the government will provide a, um, a, a, a mortgage insurance um, that will that will basically guarantee that that loan will get repaid in case you ever default. Right. So you can get a three and a half percent down mortgage, and then twenty percent. Again, think about these in terms of cost. Right. Because hey, I can I can go zero down. Yeah. Well, you're going to pay for it. In interest, right? I can go three and a half percent down. You're going to pay for it with a little bit higher interest and with a mortgage insurance premium that's that's fat packaged into the loan. There are you can go ten percent down because you can get a twenty percent down first and a ten percent second, right? So the first at twenty percent down is going to cost you less money because you have less risk. If I'm putting twenty percent down. I can guarantee you, you are highly unlikely to walk away from that loan, right? Four hundred thousand dollar house, twenty percent down, eighty grand. If you're going to invest eighty grand in something, it's not like you're just going to skip town on it, right? So I feel better as a lender about about that investment. And then there's another lender that'll say, well, if they put if they put that much down, I'll put another ten percent behind that, 
in a second mortgage because I'm relatively sure that, that, that they're not going to skip town on that. You know, so the first is going to cost you 4%. The second's going to cost you 6% or 8%. But you can, you can get a 90% loan. So you, as, as you can see, you know, as hard as it is to get a loan with lots of paperwork and paperwork, and then we'll ask you for some more paperwork, you can actually access credit. You know, unless, unless you're really in that, in that bottom, bottom, bottom tier. All it takes is money. Um, collateral. What is collateral? That's the house you're buying, right? So it's got to appraise at the at, at what you at, at what at, at the price that you're offering, right? So I got to have four things to make a loan. I got to have cash down payment of some amount, which includes, by the way, a little bit of reserves, right? The last thing you want to do is take all of your money, make the down payment, and you know you move into the house and you're like, oh, water heater blew. Um, I, we have no money. I guess you don't have any hot water either. <laughs> Cash, credit, income appraisal. All right, that's, that's, that's a home loan. By the way, if anybody wants to talk about that stuff, I cannot talk to you about it because I'm not a licensed mortgage loan officer. However, I know thousands of them that work for, work for me. Um, all right, let's talk about something that's fun, though. Um, how can I save for retirement? Um, I'm just going to throw out two things here on these two on these two questions, right? The the, the first thing is, um, number one, the, the secret to this, to both of these topics, to me, the secret, because uh, uh, Marcy, my wife Marcy, and I have been doing this uh, since we started working, is autopilot. Put it on autopilot. Either of these two topics, autopilot. And what do I mean by that? I mean. Out, uh, it, it, uh, uh, I'll, I'll actually tie it to, to uh, something that's biblical, right? Is tithing, right? You're supposed to take your first, what is it, 10%, something like that? I can't remember, right? Um, <laughs> right? Well, well, the second 1%, you know, you could, you could, you could put on, on either one of these things. First off, on 401k, most, most people that work at a company, that company will have a 401k plan. All that, that's a pre-tax deduction from your paycheck, right? So if you think of th- think about this, the government usually takes 30% or 40% of our earnings, right? Well, if I can take those money that money out before the government ever gets to it, I've just made a dollar investment for 60 cents. Right? So take advantage of your company's 401k. Because what happens is they put that money in into a uh, into a fund and, and, you know, you can select the type of investments that go into there. You want to, you know, unless, unless you're five years from retirement, you want to invest in, in, in stock funds because those have a higher propensity for growth. But you just start it. And you start with, very, you know, a very little amount and it grows over time. So you, you, can, you can take out of your paycheck up to about 16% of your paycheck can go directly into this fund, and it grows tax-free. Best options for self-employed? Best options for self-employed. So my wife is self-employed, and they have this same version of, of, the, of, of, um, of this that's called a, uh, a, a self-employed K. Uh, 401k or, or a, 
Uh, there's another word, IRA, individual retirement account, which kind of works the same way. Um, so what I would say is, that, you know, the, the most important uh, bullet point on here is the one that says seek help, advice and counsel, um, not me. Um, but, um, for, for example, she uses a, um, a Charles Schwab, um, I think it's uh, basically it's kind of a self-employed 401K, right? So, so she can take part of her earnings and put, those, and put those away in there, and it works just like my 401K from work. Um, there's actually even a cooler thing, which is when you're, because I make enough that, that we don't have to live basically on her slice, um, when the tax accountant does all the, does all the calculations, um, we effectively put about 75% of what she makes into this thing every year. It's not bounded by quite the same rules. So she's, you know, she's able to throw money into the retirement can at a, at, at, at a better clip than I can into my 401k because it's limited to about six. I think the 401, 401k at your company is limited to about sixteen seventeen thousand dollars $17,000 a year, um, you know, based on, on these, these, these uh, deductions you get out of your payroll. So, but, but, the, but the point is, is if you start small, just anything, it stacks up. All right, so I, I would encourage you, because, by the way, I mean, there's, there's some scary number, like 70% of people or something like that have no retirement savings. So, so I'm, I'm going I'm I'm to do some, uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, pick on some people, right? So, Dylan, you had a baby. Actually, Stacy had the baby. You probably didn't do anything. Um, what, three weeks, two weeks? Right. So have you... Have you uh, opened a 529 plan? No, but I have a previous 401k. Okay, but, but yeah, yeah, yeah. what's a 529? Anybody? College fund. College fund. You guys have one? You got two kids, right? Not yet. You don't have a 529 or you don't have two kids yet? <laughs> well, she had two kids. Right. Yeah, I raised them. But, uh, right. Not yet. Okay, okay. So. Uh, Charles is 14 and Andy is 12. So when they were born, um, we opened up 529 plans. I'll tell, I'll tell you what that is uh, in a second. But um, we, we put, it's either $100 a month or it's $100 per pay period. So effectively, you know, it's kind of like your Starbucks amount. Take a guess at how much money Charles has. He's fourteen. $100, well, that that would be really nice, but sixty-five thousand dollars for for Andy has sixty-three because she started a year and a half later. Actually, we started a year, but but I mean that's the the value of money just working for you and stacking up. At at a hundred dollars a month, or it's either a hundred or two hundred. I can't remember which one it is. Um, but it it you you can open you can open a five twenty. So a five twenty nine plan is basically it's a it's a uh, they have every state has their own five twenty nine administrator. And the beauty of it is it works kind of like these other plans. It's it's it it, it um, accumulates tax free. 
and it, and it can be used for any educational expense, like whether it's tuition, books, room, board, that kind of, that kind of thing. And um, so in the state of California, it's called ScholarShare. So if you go online, www.scholarshare.com or org, I can't remember which one it is, um, you'll find it, and it's administered by TIAA-CREF, which is the gigantic uh, pension administration fund. And so they have all of these. It's like they're, they're like the stockbroker, if you will. So they have this, this plan, and the plan has, you know, you can invest in stocks or you can invest in bonds, and you're like, well, how do I know which one to do? Well, the magic of it is they make it, they make it kind of simple, stupid, which is your kid is, is, is zero years old, and he's going to go to college, or she's going to go to college in 18 years. So what they do is, they, if you look in there, they have a plan, basically, for every year, right? So, like, Charles is in the 2020 plan. And what they're doing as the administrator is, obviously, stocks are a more aggressive, risky investment, and they have higher return. Bonds are less risky, lower return. So, so when, when he was zero years old, there, that portfolio was all in stocks, as he gets up to, you know, 2020 where he's going to high school, that's going to shift into bonds so it's less risky. They manage all that for you. What happens if, you know, you have a 529 and your kids don't go to college? You can use it for trade school. By the way, I, I actually, you know, I, what I tell Charles is if he doesn't get in gear, you know, I'm, I, I think he's going to the University of the Marines. <laughs> um, but, you know, you can use it for, like, practically any type of education. The idea is, is that it's kind of one of these fire-and-forget, you know, uh, autopilot kind of programs where if you, if you just put, it, like, if you got payroll deduction, and I know you guys are self-employed, but if you got, like, kind of a payroll deduction and you're just put, by the, you can open one of these for $25. By the way, when the kid was born, did grandma and grandpa, you know, give them any money? Yeah. So, so what you know, birthdays. What we what we t what we do is is you know like uh, uh, Gaga will give them you know like a hundred bucks or something like that. So we'll give them like, oh Gaga gave you some money. Here's twenty, <laughs> right? And then twenty goes in the drawer in the kitchen for them when they remember that Gaga gave them money, and uh, the other goes into into this into this thing. You know, so so that that juiced it a little bit, right? So when I said he had sixty-five grand, most of that is the is just sort of the regular payments that are that are going in, but a little bit is juiced by by birthday gifts and stuff like that. But it's autopilot, right? We don't we don't even think about that. It's it's sort of like going to Starbucks. You don't think about how much you're spending going to Starbucks. Well, I don't think about how much I'm spending putting it in here, but I know that, that you know that the cost of going to college is 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 crazy. And so I'm pretty sure that by the time he gets there, we'll at least have a year paid for, you know, depending on inflation. So that's that that's that's 401k is your retirement, 529 is your kids. If you want to, if you want to put something away for your kids, and you can start these accounts for like 25 bucks. This has been a presentation of Valley Metro Church. We pray that this message has blessed you. To hear more messages or to support future podcasts please visit us at valleymetrochurch.com.